I didn't grow up in some country hit place like people might think. In fact, when I was born in 1946 in Harlan County, Kentucky, there were 38 different nationalities represented. There were people named Bettini. There were people named Huesca. There were people named Martelli. There were people named Yakovich. I used to tell my cousins in New York City when they would disparage my roots in this coal town. And I would say, how else do y'all think you keep warm here in New York City? Except that my daddy is somewhere 500 miles away digging this coal and ends up on a train and it comes right up the mountain into Virginia, into Philadelphia, into New York, into Boston. And all that coal came out of where I grew up in Harlan County, Kentucky. It literally lit the lights of Broadway. William Turner, author of Harlan Renaissance, coming up on The Janice Adams Show. I'm Janice Adams. As journalist, historian, author, race and gender glass ceiling breaker, I wanted to do a show that would nurture our spirits, fuel us for the days ahead, to help us make that way out of no way through these trying times. I wanted to do a show about race, every race, and courage. A show where you and I meet public figures we want to know more about and neighbors from whom we hear too little. Voices, perspectives, insights, we simply need to hear. I love the fact that one critic said of my work, Janice Adams gives us vitamins for the soul. Well, with this episode of the podcast, here's a dose for your day. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. This week, a rarely seen portrait of Appalachia. Black Appalachia. Black coal miners. And with us is coal miner's son, Dr. William Bill Turner. From African-American family life and culture in the boom years of Harlan County, Kentucky's coal mining company towns, to the bust era of the Rust Belt, Bill Turner comes bearing stories of family, friends, and a centuries-old history of Black Middle America. Taking us to the heart of the scene as only an expert storyteller, dedicated scholar, and native son can, he's author of the memoir, The Harlan Renaissance, Stories of Black Life in Appalachian Coal Towns. Bill Turner, son of Appalachia, what do you think when people talk these days about bringing back coal? Well, I think immediately of uh, the former president who served after Barack Obama. Uh, he came into West Virginia campaigning for the presidency, did Mr. Trump, and he made sincere exhortations about his intention to bring back coal. And I think that that was the most disingenuous part of the beginning of his big lie, because you would never bring back coal, because in many instances in West Virginia, in eastern Kentucky, where I grew up, where my father and his father and my uncles and my brother worked in the coal mine for a total of 170 years, much of that resource is depleted. It's not there anymore. What they have also done in terms of bringing back coal being a kind of misnomer, you won't bring back coal in the sense of providing the kind of high-paying jobs that men made and women, for example. Uh, I have a photograph at the end of my book with two of the last Black women who worked in the coal mine in our hometown. I saw them a couple months ago when I was home. But the way they mine coal does not require as many strong arms, bronze or white. Coal is now mined primarily through what is called strip mining and mountaintop removal. If you can imagine coal as a pound cake, a layered cake rather, and the chocolate that you have between the four layers is the coal. My father used to enter that seam, that lateral seam, that horizontal seam. They would enter it in a tunnel that was almost like a subway in New York City. Now, they start at the top of the mountain and remove what they call the overburden to get down to that first layer, the black coal that runs 20 and 30 miles wide. And they will just remove all of the top soil, get the coal, 
go down to the next one. They literally are lowering the mountains of the South, some 5,000 miles in perspective in West Virginia and Southwest Virginia and East Kentucky, where this is done primarily by a very small number of people and only requires lots and lots of dynamite to blow the soil away. And then these humongous, what they call drag lines, which can pick up a volume of earth the size of my house in one big scoop. And then they just dump it over the side of the mountains into the streams that flow into ultimately the Mississippi River because everything is downhill when you're as high as these places are. So no, I don't think that coal will come back in that sense. It will not because one, the resources depleted primarily. And it, as we speak, the greatest amount of coal is no longer mined in the Appalachian region anyway. The greatest coal fields, the biggest coal fields, the most profitable coal fields are in Wyoming, from which they take the coal and ship it to Seattle, and it goes to India and to China. So that domestic coal used by the Tennessee Valley Authority or some of the other utilities that still burn coal to generate the lights uh, on Broadway, that coal still does come from parts of West Virginia, Virginia, Western Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Southwest Virginia, but not in the volumes and certainly not with the number of people it take, it used to take rather, to mine coal. So coal coming back is about as likely to happen as the return of, of horses uh, instead of the development of electrical cars. Mm. You know, yes, it was disingenuous because Mr. Trump was pandering. Of course. And my question at the time had been, so how many, how many contemporary house builders on, on, you know, developments are putting coal furnaces into new home construction? Right. And, thing. and obviously that's not happening. But when you write about coal, what becomes clear is whether or not coal comes back isn't about heating and electricity, it's about a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The lifestyle that you grew up in. Early in your book, you talk about being with Alex Haley and going to a museum in which the depictions of what coal means in terms of lifestyle. Bill, nobody can write the right book about Black people in Appalachian coal towns except you. Nobody will. You've got to want to write it, and you've got to know just how to write it. Mr. Alex Haley, the writer of the autobiography of Malcolm X and Roots, the saga of an American family, gave me that piece of advice in 1990 as he smiled and convincingly jabbed his right index finger into my chest. We were sitting in a swing on a wraparound porch of his white colonial design, fantastically stylish farmhouse on the parkland-like 156-acre Haley Farm near Norris in the Appalachian foothills of East Tennessee, 25 miles north of Knoxville. The Haley Farm, which is now the home of the Children's Defense Fund, is not far from the Museum of Appalachia, which was founded in 1968 by Alex's friend John Rice Irvin a MacArthur genius, and the farm is described on its website as, quote, a living history museum that interprets the pioneer and early 20th century period of Southern Appalachia. Mr. Irvin told me in the company of Alex that the museum was a monument to his devotion to preserving the history of our people in Appalachia. I marked his words and his specific reference to our people's struggle. After personal tour of the museum led by Mr. Irving, I commented to Alex that, that he had very little in his museum that was Black, whether it was in the form of art, not even photographs, or the presence of Blacks amongst the living actors who led the tours. One simply had to guess that Blacks ever existed in Southern Appalachia after walking about the grounds of the Museum of Appalachia. Alex responded to me, poker-faced, it is your topic to explore and to expand upon. What you have started, what Ed Cabell started, it is your void to fill. It is your problem to solve. You are responsible for building and maintaining African-American Appalachian museums. It is not John Rice's 
Irving's responsibility. Ms. Hale and I talked about a book I'd written titled Blacks in Appalachia that I co-edited in 1983 with Edward Joseph Cabell. Quote, you don't want anything else you write about Appalachia, Bill, about our people to be in this sterile, antiseptic, and academic voice, said Alex. Write something so that your mom and her friends can read it and will sit on the porch and talk about it. Alex inspired millions of Americans, especially African-Americans, to seek and appreciate their ancestral origins with his larger-than-life book and movie Roots. Unveiled during the nation's bicentennial observation in 1975, Roots won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature. Alex's dear friend and fellow story writer, James Baldwin, wrote in 1976, Roots is a study of continuities, of consequences, of how people perpetuate themselves, how each generation helps to doom or helps to liberate the coming one, the action of love or the effect of the absence of love. It suggests with great power how each of us, however unconsciously, can't be but the vehicle of the history which has produced us. Well, we can perish in this vehicle, children, or we can move on up the road, wrote Baldwin. In writing this book, The Harlan Renaissance, Stories of Black Life in Appalachian Coal Towns, you've written it so that your mama can read it and so that we can all understand. What is the one thing that you wanted us to know without a doubt about Harlan County, the Harlan Renaissance, as you decided to write it? The takeaway I hope people would find, uh, and it'd be obvious, is the play on words between H-A-R-L-E-M, 125th Street and Lenox Avenue, the Schomburg Collection, the Apollo Theater, all of what Garvey and uh, the luminaries of the Harlem Renaissance, it really refers to the millions of African-Americans who moved out of what we would call the Deep South in the 1900s, the early 1900s, and they all seemed to show up in Harlem in the 20s. At the height of the Harlem Renaissance, they had come from Florida, they had come from Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia, and you know hundreds of people being a native New Yorker yourself, who had come into that region at the time when my grandparents were in their 20s. And in the 1920s, when they came up into New York City, they came into Richmond. Some of them stopped there. They came into Washington. Some of them stopped there. They stopped at the 30th Street Station in Philadelphia. They stopped in Baltimore. They stopped in New York City. They stopped in Boston. But it was a stop in Harlem, in New York City, what Malcolm described as the home of Black people, ground zero for Black people between 1920 and 1960. Harlem is gentrifying right now, I am told. By contrast, there were also millions of Black people who left the Deep South more toward the middle of the country, the so-called famous Mississippi River Valley, and they came all the way up from New Orleans to Chicago. Okay, Now, many of them, a little bit further east, into Alabama's Black Belt, they came, hundreds of them, thousands of them, they came through what is known as the Cumberland Gap, where Kentucky and Virginia and Tennessee come together just north of Knoxville. And they had been recruited to go and work in the coal mines because many of them worked in the coal mines of Central Alabama. Many people do not associate the fact with United States Steel, the company in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania right now, owned Birmingham, Alabama, lock, stock, and barrel. It was called the Steel City. There were hundreds of coal mines in and around Birmingham going back to the Civil War. Correspondingly, on the other end of U.S. Steel's hegemonic dominance of being the biggest company in America, U.S. Steel, they owned Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, lock, stock, and barrel. Think of the Pittsburgh Steelers. They made steel in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And so the people that I'm referring to in my book, they came from a rural environment in the south, in and around Birmingham, within 50 miles, always as far south as Tuscaloosa and Tuskegee. And they came into East Tennessee, Eastern Kentucky, Southwest Virginia. So all I'm saying is that while all of those Black folk were migrating into New York City for a Renaissance period, 
Similarly, for those of us who came into the mountains of the South with my grandparents, some of her brothers left Georgia and went to New York. But she and her sisters came to be domestic servants for a coal company in eastern Kentucky. So there's this old expression we used in the South that says, if a tree falls in the woods and there's nobody there to hear it, did it make a sound? Well, a lot of us moved into the mountains of the South in my grandparents' generation, and we didn't make a sound. And here we are, a hundred years, years later, and people are still saying to me, I never knew there were Black people in the mountains of the South. And I can remember so well, I used to visit my cousins who lived on Amsterdam Avenue and 125th Street, I think it was, and they used to call me Country Bill. And you know what I found out? Uh, we had lived a life that was so much of a community because they would say to me, stop smiling at people. Stop waving at everybody. Somebody going to cut you. And I would say, God, how could you live in a place where you can't meet anybody except they're a stranger? Because everybody knew my grandmama's nickname. Everybody knew my mama's nickname. So that we had Count Basic, we had Duke Ellington, the Birmingham Black Barons and the Black Negro League teams came, James Brown came, because these, these coal towns like Gary, West Virginia, for example, which is owned by United States Steel, Gary, Indiana, which is owned by United States Steel, Lynch, Kentucky, which is owned by United States Steel, that company sent money into these places, which were also very uh, diverse. I didn't grow up in some country hit place like people might think. In fact, when I was born in 1946 in Harlan County, Kentucky, there were 38 different nationalities represented. There were people named Vicini. There were people named Huesca. There were people named Camacho. There were people named Alessandro Partelli. There were people named Yakovic. So that there were ethnics from all over Eastern Europe who had come to work in the coal mines. And then there were the merchants from the Middle East who came, families who came the way they went into the Caribbean, Indians, people from Iran, people from Damascus, they also came through Ellis Island, and some of them ended up as merchants in coal towns in Kentucky and Pennsylvania. So it's a fascinating history, and I'm just so glad I've been able to uh, help it make a little sound. And my parents' house in Manhattan, I remember the coal-fired furnace mm -hmm. in the basement and the coal chute down to mm -hmm. <laughs> there were two basements in in those brownstone houses there was the basement and then there was the basement that held the coal that right. there would be a chute that mm -hmm. the coal truck would come and deliver the coal down the chute right. and then yeah. someone would have to be in the basement to shovel the coal shovel into mm -hmm the the furnace i used to tell my cousins in new york city when they would uh, disparage my roots in in this coal town and i would say how else do y'all think you keep warm here in new york city except that my daddy is somewhere 500 miles away digging this coal and ends up on a train and it comes right up the mountain into virginia into maryland into new york into philadelphia into boston and all that coal came out of where I grew up in Harlan County, Kentucky. It literally lit the lights of Broadway. And now, similarly, some of that coal still gets there. I mean, let, let's not be confused. There, there's still coal burn, not necessarily in brownstones, but the electricity is generated in coal-powered plants that are on the Hudson River to this very yes. moment. Yes, mm -hmm. ab absolutely. So we burn everything but the hypocrisy. So, <laughs> but as you talk about this, you, you know, one other thing that's coming back to me as you talk about just the expansiveness of U.S. Steel as a company is that very, very famous scene in The Godfather 2 where um, they are in Cuba celebrating their achievements and looking to consolidate their power there too. And one of them looks at the rest of the table, the elder of the group, and he says, we are bigger than U.S. Steel. And he's talking uh -huh, about yeah. the mafia. So yeah. the gold standard for corporate America is, is I'm sure, mm -hmm. why, why they used that metaphor. We are 
bigger, he says, with pride yeah. than U.S. steel. And he's talking mm -hmm. about the mafia. So yeah. <laughs> the pot and the kettle, too, a little mm -hmm. bit. You, you use this title, Harlan Renaissance, and you say you want folks to understand the relationship or the kind of double entendre of Harlan mm -hmm. and Harlem if we if we it's not a double entendre, but if you don't hear it correctly, which is the beauty of the title, because we think of the Harlem Renaissance as this renaissance of black culture and 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 to some extent the birth, not really, because when did we not write, think, speak, do music? That's not the point. But the birth of the formally acknowledged culture of African Americans in the United States in, in a way in which they were contr in control of their own cultural expression and product. That's what it represents. In, in terms of Harlan and the Blacks in Harlan, what did, it, what did Renaissance mean in that sense? Okay. First two time period that I would put at the same era of the Harlem Renaissance mid-20s through the mid-60s uh, was the zenith of, of Black life and culture in Harlem, in my instance. And by the way, that's a metaphor for a, a very large area that included these coal camps that were also in Southwest Virginia and Southern West Virginia, where there were just thousands of Black people. And we had the most fundamental place where you found that renaissance, that activity was in our schools, in our schools. Because uh, uh, the, the Julius Rosenwald Fund, for example, the Jewish man who was a part owner of Sears Roebuck and Company, he joined with Booker T. Washington and they built 5,000 schools in the South, West Virginia, East Kentucky, Southwest Virginia. And they also helped to uh, build several historically black colleges that fed their teachers into these schools that I studied, where I studied, that were, quote, segregated. But the good thing about that segregation is that the best and brightest black women were our teachers. They had come out of Hampton. They came out of Tuskegee. They came out of Wilberforce, Kentucky State, Virginia State, West Virginia State, Knoxville College, and they came and taught in these mountains. And we also had cousins that would send us stuff from New York, from Baltimore, where the other part of our family had gone. And so in our own way, we were enjoying the autonomy of Black folk having their own civic clubs, uh, certainly the religious community, the churches. Uh, but back to our schools, the Booker T. Washington philosophy of you have to be the best because you represent your race. That meant so important to us because indeed, lift every voice and sing was just not a song to us. When we walked into our school, that colored school that my mama went to when she was a, a girl in 1931, they had photographs of Ida B. Wells, Mary McLeod Bethune, Booker T. Washington, Ralph Bunch, Jackie Robinson, all of that generation of the, the, the peanut man, the scientist at Tuskegee, George Washington Carver. As you know, Booker T. Washington grew up in West Virginia, as did the father of Black history, Carter G. Woodson. The father of Black history man, had been a coal miner himself. His fathers were coal miners. Bill Withers came out of the mountains of the South. A lot of people don't realize, too, that Nina Simone, came out of the mountains of Western North Carolina in a little place near Black Mountain, which is also the hometown of a woman named uh, Roberta Flack. The number of people we could tick off with these Appalachian roots. T.D. Jakes is a very famous preacher here in Texas and everywhere else. But I can remember T.D. Jakes had a church in Charleston, West Virginia, 30 years ago that was no bigger than this room I'm here in Texas. And now he has a 30,000 member church. And I'm saying that there's a whole litany, uh, a room full of people. And many of us, for example, through these humble roots that we had, were able to convert in one generation. I was the first one to go to college in my family. It never, we never thought about it twice when we brought our daughter to Atlanta 
to go to Spelman. And then a year or two later, we bought our son to go to Morehouse. And then my brothers took his sons to Morehouse. And then one of those boys went to get a, a degree at Stanford and an MBA from Columbia. And we have nieces, four nieces who graduated from Hampton. And those are all in one generation past my father who went to the third grade and my mother who went to the 10th grade. So, and that's a story that can be said about a lot of people in my hometown that I cover in one chapter called Not Bad for Some Kids Who Grew Up in a Place Called Looney Creek. Because it was a creek that <laughs> flowed through our town called Looney Creek, almost like Looney Tunes. So, so we're very proud and humbled by the seeds that our grandparents these hardworking sharecroppers who didn't know where they were going, but they gave us this sense of there was going to be a brighter day ahead. There was a song our grandparents used to say. Lift every voice and sing indeed. The Black mm -hmm. National Anthem, formerly called Negro National Anthem. Right so elevated by the NAACP. More with mm -hmm. our guest, Dr. William Turner, author of the book, The Harlan Renaissance, after the break here on The Janice Adams Show. We're back here on The Janice Adams Show with my guest, Dr. William Turner. He is the author of the new book, The Harlan Renaissance, Harlan, as in Harlan County, and the subtitle, Stories of Black Life in Appalachian Coal Towns. In the summary of the book, it refers to the Harlan Renaissance invites readers, well, it says the Harlan Renaissance invites readers into what might be an unfamiliar Appalachia, one studded by large and vibrant Black communities, some of which you've just introduced us to in the last segment, where families took the pulse of the nation through magazines like Jet and Ebony, and through the news that traveled within Black churches, schools, and restaurants. Difficult choices for the future were made as parents considered the unpredictable nature of Appalachia's economic realities alongside the unpredictable nature of a national movement toward civil rights. What did the civil rights movement mean for you in Harlan County? Obliquely, I would say it really meant nothing. Here's why. Coal towns unilaterally were like corporate fiefdoms. If some current politicians could control the flow of news and the perspectives of how what goes on in places outside their towns, if they could do that now the way they did then in our situation, I think some politicians would be quite happy. So that we lived in a very closed space. It was, it was literally, I lived in a gated community. Uh, by that, I mean, if you had no business in the town early on, before I was born, of course, you were not allowed in because the company's guards were at the beginning of the, uh, at the city limits. Uh, what do you want here? It, it was like trying to enter Fort Knox. Uh, uh, people came and went, but it wasn't as open as you might imagine. Okay. The other thing, too, as I've always written, as I've written before, the mountains were high. And the emperors lived a long, long way away. So that the access to information was quite limited. For example, the daily newspaper was called the Harlan Daily Enterprise. I can remember this always yesterday. There was no reporting of the death of Emmett Till when I was 10 years old in 1956. Uh, we had a, a 50,000 watt, we had access to a 50,000 watt radio station that was listened to throughout the South in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s by Black people. It was called WLAC. It came out of Nashville, Tennessee, the Life and Casualty Insurance Company. You could get their recordings anywhere. And they had three white men who took on a voice or vocalization that made them sound like you might have thought they were Black. Hey, what's happening there, brother? That's the way they, they so went. The they played Andy Black music for us. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I was saying like those people who are familiar with Amos and Andy, who ah, were almost. on the there radio portrayed by two white men. Right. Yeah, it was almost like blackface minstrels, you know, that came out even before slavery, when you had uh, whites who would do 
the chalk, the black chalk on their face and play fiddles and banjos because they had picked that up from these black people who played fiddles and banjos. So so we didn't we didn't hear about the blowing up of those girls in the 16th Avenue Baptist Church in Birmingham because of the isolation where we were. We literally at that time, it was seven hours to get to the nearest biggest city in Kentucky, which was Lexington. Now you can drive to Lexington in three and a half hours because the roads have been widened or interstate highways are available now. But we still live 90 miles from the nearest interstate. In my hometown, you had to go 90 miles in any direction before you get to an interstate highway. So much of Appalachia is still quite isolated. I really became, uh, we, there was an NAACP chapter in my hometown uh, in the 60s that people formed after the white folks wouldn't let us swim in the local swimming pool. Rather than, quote, let us swim in the swimming pool, they filled it up with concrete and closed it. And then they opened up a, a swimming pool in a white country club that we still couldn't go to because it was a private club. We swam mm-hmm. in the creek for the most part. Or we went 35 miles away to the town of Harlem, where there was a black swimming pool. But as far as, say, picketing and demonstrating at the company store, the company also created the conditions whereby it wasn't convenient for people who might want to practice their white supremacy to do certain things because the company wouldn't let certain things happen, you know, in terms of uh, uh, out and out discrimination. I saw very few colored only signs, except when we went outside of the town where we grew up in, because the company owned our town, they owned every store, so you couldn't put a colored only sign in it. Although the colored people couldn't eat and said, we just knew that, okay? So I got uh, my civil rights struggle perspective from our fathers because they were ardent trade unions. They were all members of the United Mine Workers of America. And the United Mine Workers of America from its inception, was the only integrated trade union in the United States, was, was the United Mine Workers of America. And they struck, they had they had shooting wars in bloody Harlem. That's how we got the reputation in the 60s. I'm sorry, yeah, in the, in the 30s, rather. But even by the 60s, there was a movie called Harlem County, USA, a documentary that's been out since the 1970s. And, and that showed how blacks and whites were quite active in their mutual, their mutual interest that they be paid as maximally as possible, that they have uh, health care and benefits for widows. But when the United Mine Workers did not, on the other hand, the whites and the United Mine Workers did not come and join the NAACP for civil rights issues or race-related issues because they didn't consider that something that was in their interest. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I became more familiar with the the Black Power Movement, which I didn't leave home until 1966 when I was 20, because I attended a, a community college near our home for two years before I went to the University of Kentucky, which was some 200 miles away. So let me ask this. So does that mean you mentioned you knew nothing about Emmett Till's murder? I mean, which was a... a turning point, a milestone, mm-hmm. uh, Rosa Parks says, when they ask her, why did she keep her seat on that infamous bus ride? The nonsense that has been put out is that she says her feet is tired. Her feet are tired. That is not what she said. She said she thought of Emmett, mm-hmm. meaning Emmett Till. And basically, she, she just was not going to give an mm-hmm. in any longer. So, 1955 is when that happens. When do you find out about Emmett Till or 1963 with the um, okay. 16th Street Baptist Church bombing that you mentioned? Okay, uh, I, I want to admit my overstatement of that uh, situation. Of course, you mentioned earlier here, leading into this segment, uh, how we found out things through the Louisville Defender, a black newspaper, uh, okay. through the Pittsburgh Courier that was in our schools. Our schools took all the major black newspapers. The, I used to read the New York Amsterdam News when I was 12 years old in our high school. Okay, okay. all right. And uh, Ebony and, and Jet are part of that. Yeah, Ebony and Jet, on the back of the book, they talk about how that's how we got our news. Ebony and Jet, there was another newspaper called The Grit. There was Sepia magazine. So yes, we were quite familiar with that. But what I meant is that there were no big demonstrations around town or no memorials for Emmett Till 
But that horrific photograph that his mama released of his bludgeoned head that appeared on the cover of Jet, my daddy passed that around to us at the dinner table and said, nice. see, boys, that's what I mean. He's looking at me and my, my brothers. Yeah, now, you know, were, and I was a little was boy. This, yes, for for I'm sorry, I didn't mean to to step on you. I was just going to say for people who don't know the analogy is that he, our generation's Emmett Till was this generation's Trayvon Martin. Right, that's right, yeah. And definitely uh, 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 George Floyd, you know, George, in the sense of this generation. George Floyd, but in, yeah. in the sense that it was a, it was a kid. Emmett yeah. Till was 14, Trayvon that's Martin right. was 16. And for some deviant white person's itch, mm-hmm. These people ended up, these children ended up murdered, and officially, nothing was really done to hold them to account. But there was a, a, a sham trial in the case of Emmett Till's murderers, and there was a sham trial in the case of uh, Trayvon Martin's murderer, in, in, in which none were held accountable for what they did to a 14 yeah, years. In recent years, I think I can't remember her name, but the woman who was allegedly offended by something she said Emmett did, uh, she finally admitted that he didn't do it anyway. Yeah, and the she, men who killed him, yeah, yeah, and the the men who killed Emmett Till, I think they were found guilty, but they were in their seventies. I mean, they went free for fifty years, and I think one of them died in prison. But yeah, it took fifty years for it, almost like what we found out about who killed Malcolm. Some people sat in, in prison in New York for 55 years, and now the FBI and the CIA said, oh, okay, now it's over. Uh, we'll let you all know. We fabricated the whole story. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Malcolm it wasn't fabricated, for just to be specific, for the fact that Malcolm was murdered in mm-hmm. at the Audubon Ballroom Audubon in, Ballroom, in yeah. Manhattan, and mm-hmm. that three men jumped up and killed him. But who those three men were, under whose direction it happened, and who made it happen is part of the fabrication mm. of of um, that event, such that Malcolm's family still cannot be absolutely certain who killed their father. Right. Dr. King's family is not absolutely certain who was responsible for the death of their father. And that is the legacy of all of that. But so when you, when the civil rights movement does come to you, even if it isn't in this company owned town with a guard at the, at the entry to it, deciding who can and cannot come into town, when it does come to you and come to your visceral awareness as a young man, what do you do with that? Where do you place that in your psyche? Well, I, I can frame it very easily. Uh, how well do I remember? And uh, they integrated our school. They closed the so-called colored school and they integrated it into the so-called white school my senior year of high school, 1963, so that we went there uh, to that school. But that was also the summer of the March on Washington, August 28th, 1963. I can remember my grandmother telling me and a couple of my buddies we wanted to see if we could get to Washington some kind of way. And she said, if y'all go to Washington, they ain't going to let your daddy work next week because they don't want no rabble rousing around here and that kind of thing. So so there was this uh, atmosphere of, of uh, that's not our problem here. Uh, everybody was so tied to their jobs. You know, almost like you may have heard the same report of people who were in an Amazon plant in Kentucky and they had heard about the coming tornado and they told their supervisors, I want to go home. And the supervisor says, you go home, you're going to get fired. And so some people died because they couldn't go home. Similarly, the Amazon of those days, United States Steel, could tell people, your son, your child is doing thus and so. And if you don't bring your child in line, we're going to have to let you go. I remember, for example, when I was a student uh, involved in some anti-war and civil rights issues by 1966, I uh, by 1968, 
I had convinced my father and some other men to sue United States Steel uh, for employment discrimination because my first job out of college, uh, the summer I graduated in 1968, I worked for the Kentucky Commission on Human Rights. And on behalf of my father and 11 other black men, they filed a class action discrimination suit. And within two years, my father and nine other black men became foremen all of a sudden. And it never happened in the 90 year history you know, of the coal company uh, in our town. Uh, and uh, because of my father's activism, and before I knew it, uh, a, a year or so later, I was sitting in a library. I had become the president of the Black Students Union. And when Dr. King was killed, Muhammad Ali was supposed to speak on the campus, already arranged before the murder. And Ali did not, Ali chose to go to Atlanta to be with the King family. I will never forget, I met Stokely and Willie Ricks and Cleve Sellers and some brothers out of SNCC when I was a junior in college in Lexington. They asked me to stand in and speak for Muhammad Ali uh, on April the 7th, 1968. And it was 11,000 people who came and I gave this presentation called I Too Am Willing to Die. And so, you know, you, you hear a lot about the steps in the radicalization of young people. Well, it didn't take a heck of a lot to radicalize me because I had grown up amongst these coal miners whom I mentioned a minute ago were quite militant in their union pursuits. And so it was almost natural for me to be involved with SNCC and, and, and the movement uh, from that point uh, to this very day today. The struggle continues. When we come back, more with my guest, mm. William Turner, Dr. William Turner, author of the new book, Harlan Renaissance. More here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. We're back here on The Janice Adams Show with my guest, Dr. William Turner. He is the author of the Harlan Renaissance, meaning Harlan County. Bill, you titled this chapter, Black Mountain Man Trips and Woman Trips. What is a man trip? Glad you asked. Uh, a man trip is, uh, let's call it a subway car. You're under the ground uh, on this car and the cable goes up to the electrical source that moves it through the mountain going to the face of the coast. So it's called a man trip. My understanding is that comes from the idea that the men who went into the mine took this trip into the mine on this shuttle car, like uh, on this car, like uh, 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 vehicle. Uh, it was usually uh, a bright yellow or a bright orange for obvious reasons in the dark or coal mine. And so it was the conveyance that rode these men, including my grandfather and my father's, my father, my grandfather's and my father, uh, 15 miles underground, uh, you know, with the feeling that you might have riding a train from Midtown out to Long Island somewhere, because that them, but it never went that fast. It was a chug chug like thing. So that that is what was called a man trip. And I was also playing with a metaphor there because some of us, my age anyway, can remember when people would say, "Man, that's a trip." Uh, uh, that reference to something that was unpleasant, or we might even say about a person. Man, she's a trip. Uh, so uh, a man trip was this this journey every morning. I would hear mama say to our dad when he she would cook breakfast between five and six o'clock in the morning. And she would holler up the stairwell, honey, get up. You got to catch the man trip. Let's go. It was like reveling. Uh, every morning when mama would holler up there to make daddy come down to go to work. And so that was a man trip. Uh and, and so when I wrote my book, I, I was originally looking at this whole notion of a man. What was a man in, when I grew up? A gentleman, a nice man, a mountain man. And then there was a trip when you have a kind of uh, uh, almost also out of my 60s era, although I had no play in it. We heard about people who had taken an acid trip. Uh, they had had some psychedelic drug like Timothy Leary's LSD trips. Yeah. These were surreal kinds of journeys that people took out of consciousness. And uh, my father would always say, you don't know what it's like going in a hole every day like this. 
where you go in from can't see to can't see. Because during the winter months, when it was dark, when dad would come home from work, my father would not see the light of day sometime for five months because he would go in the mine when it was dark and he would come out when it was dark. You know, that's an interesting point, because I remember when the horrific Chilean, well, actually, it ended up being, uh, yes, it was a horrific time, but it ended up being a kind of a an uplifting experience in the midst of the tragedy, but with the Chilean miners. And when they were finally able to extract them one by one in that amazing um, incident, and they did rescue them all, they had to put sunglasses on them coming up from all that time in the mine. And, And I'm just wondering, therefore, what did that mean with these people being never seeing daylight, you know? Uh, Well, not only that, uh, as you can imagine, a coal mine, when you, uh, I may have gotten my first sensation of what it's like to work in a coal mine when I would visit our our grandmother used uh, her bootlegging money and bought a house in Roselle, New Jersey. So I would go up there with her and I'll never forget, maybe when I was 11 or 12, they trusted me to take myself into New York City and I got in a, on a subway at, at Grand Central Station and rode to Harlem. And I could not believe the noise of that train uh, because that, you know, I'd never been in a coal mine, of course. I'd been in coal mines that were abandoned. Uh, that's just the scariest thing in the world. But uh, the noise, the very noise, uh, was also another element in my father's and my brother's and all those miners' experiences. Because when dad would come home from the mine, even though it was six or seven us, us, of us around, uh, our house would have to be very quiet because mama would say, leave him alone for a while. He has to kind of, she didn't use the word chill out. I forgot what the mm-hmm. word was. But dad literally had to decompress when he would come home because he said, it's so noisy with uh, the creaking of the mines. And then you would hear a section implode upon itself. Uh, there was a constant, uh, idea that is this roof going to fall on my head? And uh, I had a little Chilean experience when I was 12 and dad was trapped in a mine for about nine hours. Uh, one man died doing that cave in. But if you can imagine being 12 years old and what they would do whenever there was a mine accident, the whistles would blow throughout the town, uh, as you can imagine, industrial whistles, and everything would stop. And the school principal got on the uh, PA system, we called it, and said, would all the Turner children come to the office? Well, I knew what that meant uh, because we had heard it before. And rather than go to the office, I ran out of the back door to school and ran across the hill to the mine where dad had, had been trapped. And we were there six or seven hours before they bought dad out. And because they bought people out, some of them were covered over because they had been killed. And when our dad came out, dad had uh, broken his right arm, his leg, four or five of his ribs. Uh, It had completely almost crushed his face. I personally thought dad was dead. And uh, six months later, not less than six months later, no more than six or eight months, uh, dad went back in the mine. Because I said, dad, won't you get another job? He was like, what what other job? What what am I going to do? This is all I've ever done. I got seven of y'all. And so uh, we we experienced those scary times when there had been explosions. Not long ago, Vivian and I went to uh, uh, West Virginia in 2009, I want to think it was. There was a major explosion there that killed 27 men. And President Obama came and spoke. And the governor of Kentucky asked me to go represent the state of Kentucky at this sad affair where we went to we went to Beckley. And all of these people, you know, 27 people to die at one time in a coal mine. So uh, there, uh, it was a very dangerous profession. Uh, thus, that whole idea of, of uh, this was a trip. Uh, our brother, who, God rest his soul, who's only three years older than me, uh, he worked in the coal mine for 32 years. And uh, he used to say to us, man, you don't ever want to do this. You don't want to come in. This is a trip. So that was the whole notion of a man trip, uh, a kind of play on words. 
Mm-hmm. You write about what happened to your dad. I love his quote. When I asked him 30 years later why he went back to work in the mines after escaping death in that roof collapse, he said, I was 40 years old. We had a house full of children that had to be taken care of. Mining was all I knew to do. What choice did I have but to go back? I'm thankful that I did because it kept us together as a family. This has really been quite a a trip (laughs) Uh, through what it meant to grow up in Harlan County. At the end of your book, you talk about what is not just the end of your story there, but what happens when the mine closes. In mid-August of 2019, I stood on the railroad tracks with roughly 80 coal miners in Harlan County. The coal giant Blackwell LLC had made the emergency bankruptcy filing and closed shop, sending hundreds of workers home, their paychecks bouncing and their bank balances underwater with automatic deductions for house payments, cars, utilities, and the like laying on the line. Those persons, the majority of whom were high school graduates, Many of them were high school dropouts, were accustomed to making sixty to $90,000 a year. Their funeral-like atmosphere was tangible. George Massey, African-American, 67, was amongst them. And he had been born and raised and a lifelong resident of our hometown. He was a head deacon at the Mount Sinai Baptist Church. He's a retired United Mine Workers disciple who had worked with our father and our brother, Irving. And he expressed at that hour the future of many people who were blocking the railroad tracks that day. Those who relied on the promise of Donald Trump made three years earlier when he said he was going to bring coal back. George said, man, it ain't about Trump's foolish promises. It's about whether these coal miners will give in to the fact that coal jobs in the amounts that our fathers and our grandfathers had them are long gone. They had better do something else to make a living or they can just wait until the cows come home. And there ain't many cows around here in these mountains. Dr. William Turner, author of the book, The Harlem Renaissance, Stories of Black Life in Appalachian Coal Town. Bill, thank you so much for joining me today. Dennis, thank you so much. I appreciate this opportunity you've given me to talk about my book. My thanks to our guest and to you for joining us here on The Janice Adams Show today. For links to my guest, his work, and more, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. In cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Rubio, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. I am a 28-year-old black male who enjoys reading your writing, came the letter to my email box. I would like to request from you a reading list of recommended African-American books that will help to open my mind. Sincerely, a student of life. I understood where he was coming from. I knew what books had done for me, how the right books had opened my mind and opened doors. Indeed, whenever I give a talk, someone will inevitably stay behind to confide, if only I'd known, to ask, why didn't anyone tell me to say thank you for helping me to break through the code of silence on a vast world of experience, ideas, and possibilities. Well, that email and some of the people that I've met at those lectures inspired my list, 50 books that changed the history of African America, and you can download your free copy from my website. Just go to JaniceAdams.com, J-A-N-U-S-A-D-A-M-S.com, and click on Books and More in the menu. For more about the podcast, my books, speaking engagements, you know what to do. Visit JaniceAdams.com.